This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Roz Taylor. It's a sound you hear pretty much every week at Prime Minister's Question Time. Our representatives shouting and harrying each other. Opportunistic uh, throughout. The public don't really appreciate it, but it's part of the great tradition of adversarial parliamentary debate. So what can you do, right? Someone who does want to improve the way MPs conduct themselves is Hannah White, who leads the Institute for Government's work on Parliament and is the author of Held in Contempt, What's Wrong with the House of Commons? Welcome to the bunker, Hannah. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks for having me. When you first went to work at the Houses of Parliament, were you disturbed by the culture there? I think I actually wasn't, and maybe that's more disturbing. It was my first proper job, and I think it only really dawned on me over the decade in which I worked there how actually this wasn't a really a very normal workplace. And really the, the key aspect of that is this, is this massive imbalance of power there is between the staff who work there and the MPs. And the fact that if you're elected, you're basically untouchable <laughs> and you can, you can treat other people as you wish. And most MPs do treat each other and staff pretty well, but there's a significant minority who don't. And I guess what I started to realise was there weren't really any consequences for that. And so I guess that was part of the reason why I left. And that hasn't changed greatly in recent years, has it, despite some fuss being made? No, I mean, since Me Too hit Westminster, there has been a big sort of push to get in place proper HR procedures, procedures by which people can report inappropriate sexual harassment, bullying, anything like that, and a process, an independent process, right up to the final stage, it's independent, whereby those allegations can be investigated and sanctions can be applied. But I think that's that's very um, important, but it hasn't necessarily had the change and the impact on the culture that also needs to be seen. And I think we saw that very recently with the Neil Parrish incident where he was looking at porn in the chamber and the female MPs who had seen him do that were so worried about the implications for their own careers of being named as somebody who was calling that out. That they they could were only willing to be anonymous about it, and I think that shows you that particularly for elected people in the House of Commons, the culture hasn't changed significantly. There's still real worry about repercussions to your career if you are seen as a troublemaker. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because we've just had two by-elections, one of them to replace Neil Parrish, of course, prompted by sleazy and criminal behaviour by MPs, and there are no fewer than fifty-six others underestimate investigation for sexual misconduct, which is a pretty high ratio of total number of MPs. Is there something about the kind of people who stand and win elections in Britain that makes them more likely to behave this way? I think there probably is something about people who think they are willing to become an MP and would like to become an MP, which which 
means they're possibly more likely to sort of step over the line than the rest of the population in general. I think you have to be a risk taker to be prepared to sort of put your life on hold and stand for election, possibly, you know, in some part of the country that you, you know, you don't have prior connections with, to outreach yourself and to go into what is actually a very uncertain career uh, where you could be, you know, chucked out at an election which could happen at any time. And you have to have a certain level of ego to to think that tens of thousands of people should vote for you to be the person who represents them. So there is a self-selection in that. I think more recently we've also seen possibly, because we've had a couple of snap elections, some of the people who were selected by parties were possibly, that was done in quite a rushed process, and maybe some of the people who won seats were slightly less carefully vetted than their predecessors would have had to have been. And some of the things that we've seen come out over the course of this parliament, I think, have been historic things before those people were thinking about Imran Ahmed Khan, for example, who's been actually found guilty of a criminal offence. That was prior to him being an MP. Presumably that should have come out in the vetting process before he before he stood. Is there a kind of assumption that if someone passed the test of public popularity, in other words, is elected by a majority in a constituency, that they are then considered fit to be an MP, but there isn't enough other diligence going on to find out who they are and whether they're good enough? Well, you know, in the end, that has to be up to parties. It has to be up to parties to decide who they're willing to have represent them and and stand on their behalf. We have a very few people who successfully stand as independents in this country. And there are only limited sort of restrictions on who can become an MP. So that does put a heavy weight on parties to, to, to think about whether and, and to find out whether these are, are people who they want associated with their party brand. But I think another problem which causes issues in Westminster is the assumption that once you are elected, some MPs essentially feel that it is only the people who should ever be able to remove you from that position, only the voters, only their constituents. And actually, what we've seen with Me Too and some of the other sort of scandals is actually there are some things where, you know, if you commit a criminal offence or if you commit a serious offence, which is not criminal, but which is brings the House of Commons into, into disrepute, there ought to be mechanisms uh, whereby you can be removed without another election. And so we've had the introduction of the Recall of MPs Act, which has certain things which trigger it, which can lead to a by-election and, and someone being removed. Some MPs, I think, really feel that any other source of authority shouldn't really be able to remove them from their position when actually there are good reasons why you know, constituents might need an extra say outside of the normal electoral cycle. So do the public have much idea of what MPs spend their time doing, do you think? No, I don't think they really do. And I think, to, to be quite honest, and I don't say this in a sort of in a demeaning way, but most, most people don't really have much idea of the distinction between parliament and government. I mean, maybe that's changed a little bit with the whole Brexit process where the the conflict between parliament and government was so clear. But a lot of people don't spend a lot of time thinking about politics. They have more important things in their daily lives and difficulties and problems they're dealing with and other priorities. And then if you, you know, the language that's always used in the reporting of parliament, because it is parliamentary language, is quite impenetrable. 
So I think it's quite difficult for people to get a handle on what it is that MPs are doing, what contribution they're actually making. And then that can be quite difficult for the reputation of Parliament, because if people don't understand what MPs are doing, it's hard for them to value it. I think you're right about that. I think a lot of people don't really know about separation of powers, for example. It's just not something which certainly used to be taught in schools. I'm not sure whether it's taught in schools now. But during the Brexit wrangling, I sometimes struggled to work out what was going on. And I was following it quite closely because it was part of my job to do so. Why is it so hard to understand how laws are debated and passed in Britain? There's a number of factors. And I mean, it really is extremely difficult. Some of the occasions during Brexit, I was on the airwaves sort of being interviewed by journalists to explain what had happened. And it was perfectly clear from what some MPs were saying, that they hadn't understood what had happened. And they're the ones who were for whom these rules are designed to enable them to do their jobs. So that sort of tells you the extent of the problem. But I think parliamentary rules have developed over centuries and sort of accreted and they are made, they're not all written down in one place. So it's a bit like our, our constitution, writ <laughs> small. We have lot different sources of rules. There are what's called the standing orders, which are rules which the House has decided for itself. There's a big sort of legal tome called Erskine May, which people sometimes call the parliamentary Bible, which sets out the history of all these things and all the, also all the precedents, not just the rules, but the sort of conventions and norms that should be followed. Uh, then there are speaker's rulings. Then there are all the things that have happened since anyone wrote anything down. So we had a whole lot of change in parliamentary procedure during the Brexit process, which wasn't then written down into the guidance and the rules for a couple of years afterwards. So you had to know that it had happened to know that it was applicable and, and might affect what happened in future. So it is extremely difficult for people to get their heads around that. People who do the job that I used to do, being a clerk in the House of Commons, make an entire career out of understanding this stuff in order to be there to explain it, to help members operate in the House of Commons. But the very fact that you need to work in the House of Commons essentially for 40 years to really get your head around it shows us, I think, it's just way too complicated. So how should we make it easier? Is it a case of throwing out Erskine May, of instituting some sort of more permanent code? How could we do it? I think we need a, a, a permanent review process. So Parliament's very good at adding rules, thinking of new things it wants to be able to do and sort of adding them on to the end of the, of the long list. It's not very good at doing something like what the Law Commission would do, for example, for, for laws more generally, and looking at what laws, what rules there are and consolidating them, removing the, the bits we don't use or need any longer, simplifying the language. I think, you know, the people who write down parliamentary rules are specialists in procedure. They're not specialists in accessibility. And I think there is a, there's a lot of expertise out there about how to write things in ways which makes it accessible to the public. And, and that expertise needs to be brought in. And then we just need this continuous process whereby everyone goes through these rules, which, as I've said, are extensive, and just ask the question, you know, do we really need these? Is there a simpler way of doing this? And then the crucial aspect is the government needs to give time for any changes which are proposed from a process like that to be brought into effect. Because we often have a situation with the rules in Parliament where there are committees, there are mechanisms which come up with proposals of how to do things better and more simply in a more rational way. But the government often thinks, well, it's not really a priority. It's not necessarily in our interests to make this easier and simpler to understand. So we won't let the House of Commons have the time to debate it and vote on it. And so these proposals languish unimplemented. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. People might be surprised to learn that the government can make and change some laws without even getting parliamentary approval. How does that happen? So we saw that in particular during COVID, there was a special procedure attached to some of the public health legislation that the government used to implement the lockdown, for example, whereby if the Secretary of State was of the opinion that there was a a sufficiently urgent reason to legislate without showing the proposed legislation to Parliament at all, as you say, then they were able to do that. And the pandemic was seen as a sufficiently urgent reason. So for, you know, a long period during the pandemic, the Secretary of State for Health made use of this ability to just make laws. And that, and the House of Commons and the House of Lords had to retrospectively look at them. But sometimes we were in this ridiculous situation where the, lo- the committee meetings which were being held to look at uh, laws were looking at laws which had been superseded several times by other laws, but Parliament hadn't been given an opportunity to scrutinise the legislation for maybe a month after it had come into effect. And we all saw how rapidly and frequently regulations changed in the context of coronavirus. And just to clarify, this meant that you could break the law when the law might have come into effect hours, minutes earlier, and not been debated or discussed. And not even published. So sometimes you couldn't even have been able to read the text of a law which applied to you. You had no way of knowing what was in the law, and yet you could be you could have broken it because it was it was already in effect, say from midnight, and the law wasn't published until say nine o'clock the following morning. It was remarkable, a remarkable period that 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 was able to happen, and I was struck, I suppose, by Boris Johnson's dismissiveness of the whole Partygate issue, and by saying that uh, by implying that nobody really understood what was going on at the time not even himself. And when you hear about how these laws were passed without parliamentary scrutiny, you can almost start to appreciate that line of argument, can't you? Well, I think there were people, you know, well-informed barristers, policemen and so on, saying at the time, you know, we just can't implement this stuff, it's too complicated. And, and you know, we haven't had the notice, we haven't had debates in Parliament about it, which would function to help explain it to people. I have less sympathy for the Prime Minister, I have to say, because his almost his sole job at that time was to go on television and tell people what the rules were and and try and persuade people to follow them. So the fact that he um, has said, you know, it was it was too difficult for him to understand, if that was the case, then that was his job to sort that out. Let's talk about the Palace of Westminster as a physical place and how that affects what goes on there. When you look at it as you're crossing Waterloo Bridge or another of the big bridges in London, it looks huge, it looks untouchable. But in fact, it's crumbling, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the Palace of Westminster itself is is in a very severe state of disrepair. It has numerous problems since it was built by the Victorians. I mean, when the Victorians built it, it was new and innovative and uh, you know a great uh, symbol of sort of Victorian Britain. 
But now the stonework is crumbling. There are problems with all the mechanical and electrical systems. There's an extremely high risk of a fire and asbestos riddled throughout the building. And those are just this kind of maintenance problems. I think there's a, there's a wider set of problems around the structures of the building, the sort of architecture of the building. And, and what those were sort of built to, to, to reflect, they were built to ref- reflect a society which was very hierarchical, which was perfectly comfortable with this idea that MPs and peers were a class that was above the public and there was no need to make Parliament accessible to the public. And I think society has changed a lot and the building obviously hasn't and is no longer really fit for a modern Parliament to be sitting in. So if you're disabled, for example, and you use a wheelchair, it's very hard to access the Commons Chamber, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you have to be in your wheelchair on the on the, on the ground, basically. You can't, there's no way to get up and sit with your colleagues and your peers. You have to be just sort of by the entrance in between the two sets of benches. And that's, you know, doesn't enable really people to, to sort of fully participate. There have been arguments made that the chamber should be, you know, made more accessible including sort of the most extreme arguments around making it sort of more like a hemicycle, which lots of other parliaments use, which is seen as a less confrontational sort of a form of architecture. But those have always been resisted because people feel that, you know, uh, the, 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 the Commons Chamber has a historical value, but also cultivates a form of politics that, that those who participate in it rather like. So it's really nostalgia that drives this. What do we know about the way that people in other parliaments with a hemicycle arrangement, how they debate and discuss, is it very, very different? Well, I mean, not necessarily. So that the Scottish Parliament, for example, is a hemicycle and it is still a pretty um, sort of confrontational place. It was built with the intention of, you know, the, the intention with, with Scotland, the assumption was that the electoral system there would, would deliver more uh, sort of multi-party outcomes that's not proven to be the case uh, with the strength of the SNP. So so it's not a, a given that you change the architecture, you change the politics, but there are lots of parliaments in the world, normally those who don't use the first-past-the-post system, who also have a, a sort of hemicycle type arrangement, an arrangement where there's actually a seat for every member, because obviously in the House of Commons, you can only seat 400 members. So actually, if they all want to be there at any one time, they can't be. There's just not space. And then they have to go and sit in the public galleries and things upstairs if there's a really big event that they want to be present for. But that's, you know, other parliaments make sure that every person has their own seat. Uh, and that's obviously much better from an accessibility point of view. So might a coalition, of course, we had one 2010 to 2015, but it might it become more thinkable? I suppose, in British politics, if we had a different layout of in Parliament, if we didn't have the government, the opposition, and then a few other, you know, small parties stuffed in somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, I think you probably have to start with the voting system. I think the architecture probably comes uh, after, after that. I don't think that the, the sort of layout of the chamber can drive the politics. But I think it is definitely the case that the fact that uh, we have a first-past-the-post system leads to having two strong parties, leads to an oppositional politics, which is then exacerbated by the architecture of the chamber. So in many ways, the logical thing to do would be, given the state of the Palace of Westminster, to have what's called a decant, 
in the jargon, which is moving into another building so that the Palace of Westminster could be completely renovated and the asbestos removed and all the crumbling bits and the mechanical problems sorted out. But there is a huge amount of resistance to that, isn't there? There is. I mean, that would be the cheapest, quickest and safest way to do this work, which desperately needs doing. I mean, the the, the no action uh, sort of alternative is, is not free. We're spending hundreds of millions of pounds every year on just maintaining the Palace of Westminster, but we cannot keep up with the state at which it is crumbling. So numerous reports over the last 30 years have said that, that everybody should move out and just let every, let an army of, of workmen, stonemasons, electricians, and everyone move in and sort everything out. But there's a great deal of resistance to that, mainly from the commons, less so from the lords, because I think there's there's just something about the building which is really tied up in MPs' psyche with their with their role, uh, and they see it as part of you know contributing to their standing and their status. It's the place that they've aspired to sit, and there's a very real probability most of them that if they move out they might never sit there again plus there's the difficulty of having to explain a you know a, a pretty hefty price tag of billions of pounds to their constituents and, and no generation of MPs has wanted to do that and so they continue to think well why should I go through this um, this uncomfortable hard to justify process for the benefit of my you know peers who will come decades into the future There's just no incentive for them to do that. And so they put it off and put it off. The current leader of the House of Commons is Mark Spencer. But until fairly recently, it was Jacob Rees-Mogg who makes a number of appearances in your book, Hannah. Do you think now we will begin to see some progress now that we have a new leader of the House of Commons? Well, I think the person who is in that role has a really crucial impact on whether progress has been made. And and you can see that by contrasting Jacob Rees-Mogg with his predecessor, Andrea Leadsom who started out as a, as a sort of restoration and renewal in the jargon sceptic, but was convinced by what she saw when she was taken around the building and into the very alarming basement that actually this was a priority and, and progress didn't need to be made with it. Jacob Wiesentmog was never convinced of that. And indeed, he is very much traditionalist and wants to preserve much about the way politics is done exactly right now. And we saw that with the coronavirus pandemic too, that he was very keen to sort of get rid of all the innovations that were brought in to enable Parliament to deal with coronavirus and uh, to return to the, what had been the case before. It is possible that the new leader of the House will take a different view, but in fact, there is no weight of opinion, I don't think, within the Cabinet that this is something that, that they want to pursue. And it was, you know, it was a lot, the last time any significant progress was made, which has now sadly been reversed. It was the result of quite a long sort of campaign within government to get enough people on side and to get a sort of cross-party consensus to make progress. And I think that that all that work that was done to do that hasn't since evaporated. So I don't hold out any significant hope at the moment of any progress being made on it. And on that note, you end the book with a rather gloomy prediction that it will take something catastrophic to happen to the Houses of Parliament, maybe a serious fire or something else that makes it impossible for MPs to sit there for real change to happen. But pending that, and obviously we hope that something catastrophic does not happen to the Palace of Westminster, is there something achievable that you'd like to see happen right now that could be done quite easily? Well, 
I mean, I think the evidence is that that change in Parliament does happen in one of two ways. It happens either because of a crisis, a scandal, a disaster, and as you say, the the, the potential if MPs don't get on and deal with the restoration of the Palace of Westminster is that they will be forced to, at short notice, with no notice, suddenly move out when something goes very badly wrong, and that is not unlikely. If that, you know, in in the absence of that, what we really need is what we had until six, uh, nine months ago, which was uh, a sponsor body set up in law, uh, which was to, to take on the sort of role of being the the customer, if you like, on the parliamentary side, so that the delivery authority, which had been set up, had a had someone to, to talk to, which wasn't just a committee of MPs who could change their mind at any moment, but a sort of legally constituted group of people involving MPs, involving peers, but not solely driven by a sort of parliamentary process, who could progress this, this project forward. Sadly, that is what the House of Commons Commission has decided to disband. So in its absence, I think we're rather back to square one. Ah, well, on that slightly depressing note, Hannah, thank you so much for joining me and for doing such a fantastic job of explaining the, some of the intricacies of the way that Parliament works. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Held in Contempt is published by Manchester University Press. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also support us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.